Hello, I'm Luke St. Pierre. And I'm Sarah Daly. Welcome to Afrofiles. Since summer 2020, we've seen at least seven coup attempts across North and West Africa. To get a sense of what's happening and why, we're talking with Dr. Miles Tendi, a professor of political science, international relations, and African studies at Oxford University. Dr. Tendi challenges attempts to overgeneralize regional trends and highlights the importance of assessing these coups on individual bases. He discusses the shortfalls of human rights dividends relative to security assistance in the region, Russian influence, and the limitations of existing multilateral and international responses to coups. So everyone, thanks for joining us today. We're going to be speaking with Professor Miles Tendi. Very grateful to have you with us today, sir. Excited to hear about what you have to say about coups in Africa. We were hoping you could give a brief introduction, your background, um, where you're coming from. I teach politics at the University of Oxford, interests in politics and gender, civil military relations, intelligence, and the world of um, biography writing with a primary focus on the politics of Africa. Terrific. I'll set the scene for us. So since the August 2020 coup in Mali, there have been five subsequent successful coups and one failed coup across North and West Africa. By our count, we're tracking August 2020 in Mali, a failed coup in March 2021 in Niger, the April 2021 coup in Chad, again in Mali in May 2021, in Guinea in September of 2021, in Sudan in October of 2021, and in Burkina Faso this past January 2022. So with the stage set, are coups contagious? Why are we seeing so many coups concentrated in this particular region? Um, yeah, fascinating question. I think um, a good place to, to begin um, would be to say why we see so many coups concentrated in this part, part of the world is to look at the history of these um, countries. And um, we will soon find, by looking at that history, that all of these countries pretty much have a long history of, of coups. So it is not unusual that um, the undergoing coups is, this is not the first time um, experiencing coups. So it's not unusual that um, these coups have happened. What is striking is them occurring such close proximity. Um, and coming at a time when coup frequency had declined. So I think these um, five, six coups we've had in recent times constitutes the, the highest number of coups we've had um, for a long, long time, for, for over decades. So I think what's fascinating is why so in short duration of time, um, but not so much why the coups happened, because these countries have a long history of problematic civil-military relations. Are they contagious? Look, there's literature around this. I think it's Ruth First, for instance, wrote that dumb book, Barrel of the Gun. She talked a lot about coups um, back in the 60s. Having been contagious, she made that argument. I tend to tell people all the time that the best way to study and understand coups is to go out and find the coup doers themselves and interview them, let them tell you the exact motivations, understand the dynamics that were played at the time, and also talk to the losers in the coup. 
<laughs> that's where you get a real sense of the dynamics that we're playing. And uh, nobody's quite done that yet. So I, on the point about whether um, coups are contagious with reference to this specific set of coups, I would like to suspend my judgment until um, I've actually talked to the players and, and sassed out the degree to which they were looking at what was happening next door, learning from each other. Was there coordination of some sort? I think it's too soon to say without anybody having interrogated coup players themselves. You kind of took that on in two parts, first being history and then now just mentioning the individual players. And so I'd be curious to pick those two apart. First and foremost, you said this region in general has that history of coups. So it might not be particularly exceptional to think that there's a resurgence of it concentrated in this region. But when you look at the coups themselves, do you find any similarities or key differences between what's happening in this era of coups compared to other coup periods in Africa from the 70s and 80s? I think one thing to appreciate about coups is every coup is different. And not just between countries, but even within countries. So you, when the country has its first coup, the subsequent coups have very different motivations. These coups, it's important to, to take them case by case. One thing that we do see that cuts across quite a number of these coups in terms of the grievances, if particularly think of um, the coups, say in Mali, Burkina Faso, one grievance that seems to cut across these coups has been the sense that the army feels the civilian authorities haven't managed the wars against terrorism very well, that they've neglected the armed forces, they don't understand what it means to do counter-terrorism. So that's been a grievance, you might say, has cut across some of these coups, Mali, Burkina Faso, for instance. But when you think of, say, a Sudan, this isn't one of the grievances. And the Sudan coup is, is very, very different from the coups you're seeing further west of the continent. So I would say each coup is different modi motivations. That's the nature of coups. Like one, they're best understood case by case. But we are seeing this grievance about the mismanagement of wars against terrorism, so to speak, by civilian authorities driving coups in, in some countries, but not all. So you mentioned each coup is unique. And you also said that you're going to hold your opinion on some of these outcomes until you've had the opportunity to speak with the individual players and, and see how things play out. But at this moment right now, I'm curious to know if you can observe any trends uh, among the actual leaders of these coups. I bring it up because in many cases, a number of these leaders have common education in European countries, Western military academies. So that was a fact that just got me thinking, is there any kind of ideological similarity in the people that are stepping up and trying to overturn people in power? Well, I think um, on, on the patent, one thing's back on the older coups, say back in the 60s, 70s, even 80s. The losers in those coups um, probably wound up dead or sent into exile. That's different, this pattern of coups. I think it was the Guinea coup and the soldiers pose with Alpha Conde. He's on his couch. A very famous photo. <laughs> exactly. He looked like he was in some kind of, I don't know, um, photo shoot. <laughs> Unpleasant as it looked, but, you know, it's just to show we, 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 we have the present and they place him under arrest. None of the losers in these coups have been shot dead, as in the old days, 
or perhaps sent into exile right away or sometimes happened um, you waited for the civil authority to be traveling somewhere abroad and then you staged a coup while he was outside the country that's what happened to Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana and a host of other leaders so I think that's different my sense is this is an attempt to ward off some of the external criticism that comes into play. So don't shoot the, the head of state. Still, you know, you're moving this individual from power, but still show them some kind of respect, treat them well. Um, perhaps it might minimize uh, the international outrage in relation to the coup. So that could be one explanation. So I think that's changed. So you see that pattern, nobody, nobody's getting shot dead or, or sent into exile. Thinking about the Sudan coup, the Sudan coup, what makes it very different from the coups, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and the others, I think the Sudan coup was staged by generals. And I think it's Albrecht and Kohler who write about it. It's what they call endgame coups. Coups that occur in contexts where there's been a period of strong popular protest. And when the protests occur, they occur against a regime that's basically a pretty consolidated political and military um, regime. So where they're closely knit. And that was the case between Bashir and his, and, his, and his generals. But when this happens, political, military elite, they respond to the protests, attempt to, to put them down. But if the protests are sustained, which is what happened in Sudan, despite the violence by the state, protesters, civilians kept coming out to challenge the, the status quo. And Sudan is fascinating because you've got an interesting mix of um, women being quite activist about this as well. What then happens is these military elites begin to make some hard choices. Um, let's sacrifice the civilian authority, right, for the sake of the regime's survival. So these are what Albrecht and Kohler call rollback coups or conservative coups. So the general stage the coup, they get rid of Bashir. Well, yeah, we've gone rid of Bashir and they take over. But it's not for the sake of reform. It's to preserve the old order. I think the Sudan coup is distinct in that way. The other coups we're seeing, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and others, these are not generals staging them. And coming back to your question, you're absolutely right. A lot of these young soldiers, so to speak, they're not ordinary soldiers. Gone to top um, French uh, military training academies, some American. And I think what that tells us is that part of the world, that Sahel region, the West has been very engaged and tried to work with these states to stamp out the terrorist threat. What we've done a lot of is train and equip. We train these soldiers well, equip them well. I think what the West is perhaps underemphasized is also strengthening the civilian arms of the state. So political arrangements, states, government. And that way these somehow um, there's, a, there's a balance, there's somehow a par within um, the state structures. So I think what that tells us is we've placed too much emphasis on the armed forces. We train them, they become highly skilled, right? They know how to run a war such as this, let's give them that credit. And then they look at the civilians who probably don't have as good an understanding of what it takes to run such a campaign against you know, terrorist groups. Think, for example, if you're a soldier and um, there's a parliamentary committee on defense that's supposed to provide oversight on the activities of the army, right? And the parliamentarians don't understand much about security or military affairs, right? There's a sense of disdain <laughs> that comes with that. Oh, these civilians. 
these young soldiers, highly trained, often in Western academies, speak to that. We've been training and equipping a lot, particularly on the armed forces side, but we haven't done enough to bolster the civilian structures of the state. So you see this lopsided in terms of a power balance. And I think that's what's um, perhaps encouraging the armed forces to, to actually take over because they think in this particular context, context of war, right, they're actually better place to be running the state and these armed wars because they think the civilians don't know exactly what, the, what to do with um, the terrorist problem. So I think it goes back to that partly. But also I would like to say one also has to ask, even when we train soldiers, right, what are we emphasizing in these academies when they come over to France or the US or the UK? Is it also that we train them to go back and respect democratic civilian authority or governance or control? Or we're simply training them to be killing machines that work to stamp out terrorism. So I think there's something there. What are we, in terms of the when we build up human capacity, what are we building up exactly? I think there needs to be some rethinking about that. But I would particularly emphasize the training and equipping. Place too much emphasis on armed forces and not done enough to the civilian arms of the state. How do they actually implement democratic civilian control of these increasingly capable armies that are being built up? I think that's really important, and it's something that certainly policymakers in countries that do provide security assistance for countries fighting violent extremism need to consider, you know, how to supplement or amplify their current train and equip programs to include respect for human rights, understanding the preservation of democracy and good governance and things like that. To transition a little bit, can you talk about the state of democracy in this region? Do you find evidence of a relationship between democratic indicators and coups, or perhaps the so-called constitutional coups or things like that? Look, um, coups have affected all kinds of regimes, but in recent years tended to focus on you know, target the more authoritarian arrangements. But again, I, I would go back to where we started about um, how the best way to study coups is talking to the coup players themselves. I very much doubt that in their real motivations for these coups, there is any sense that um, democracy or debates about authoritarianism matters at all. So when I hear of democracy, authoritarianism being linked to coup occurrence, I get slightly concerned because I don't think it's really about that. There are particular reasons for staging uh, these coups, and often this has nothing to do with grand ideas of authoritarianism or democracy. Let's take some examples. Guinea, you're talking about um, changing of constitutions by presidents. I think this Guinea president Alpha Conde amended the constitution so he could run a third time after he's done. He had done his first two terms. So he's doing all of this. But um, who was his right-hand man? He's in the enforcer of his regime. There were protests against all this. The protests were put down. It was violent. There were deaths by civilians. It was Dumbuya, the man who eventually led the coup against him. So you want to ask if this is really about, as they stated, that um, we change the constitution, he's undemocratic. If this was really about that, why was Dumbuya Conde's enforcer for all those years? And only realizes much, much later on, after the constitution has been changed, protests have been put down, Conde's won a very controversial election. It's very late in the day for Dumbuya to suddenly become a Democrat, isn't it? That should tell you, actually, Dumbuya's motivations um, probably lie elsewhere. And my sense always, and here I like, and this is where I like Samuel De Callow's work on coups. He always emphasized how coups in Africa often had very individual and all personal motivations. And you'd want to think, well, when I think of Dumbuya and Conde's relationship, Dumbuya was not in Guinea and he was 
a French legionnaire. He comes back to Guinea because Condé asked him to come back. They belong to the same ethnic group. They were very close. Dumbuya is implicated in range of human rights abuses on, on in pursuit of protecting Condé's leadership. To me, that tells me something happened between Dumbuya and Condé. These individuals who were once so close to cause a breakdown of relations. And that's not unusual. Going back to Samuel de Callow's point, thinking of Blaise Campore and Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso. They were like brothers, staged a coup together, eventually they fall out. Campore has Sankara assassinated. Think of Equatorial Guinea, Martius Gemma and Theodore Obiak. This is uncle and nephew. But Dom Teodoro stages a coup against his own uncle, has him put on trial, very public trial, and shot firing squad. Uncle, right? That's, <laughs> these are the, the personalized and very individual motivations that Keller talks about. Idi Amin and Milton Obote were once very close, right? Coming back to, say, cases such as Zimbabwe, for instance, coup against Robert Mugabe in 2017. Grace Mugabe became quite a central figure in that coup. But what is not often talked about is that um, the, the coup leader, Chiwenga, was actually related to Grace Mugabe. So when such fall, falling out happen between once closely knit, even related individuals, I would push away from, this is about democracy also, I think these are the declarations made for public consumption to somehow try to justify the coup, dress it up. But there are a lot of very personalized and individual motivations at play that we never quite find out, again, going back to where we started, unless we talk to the coup players and the losers in the coup. So my sense is, Conde can probably tell us what the hell happened between him and Dumbuya. <laughs> um, this used to be my right-hand man. Why did he turn against me? And that need to be gone. So I, I, when I hear democracy, authoritarianism, I was like, nah. The, the reasons are often much more parochial than those grand ideals. So what do you make of a case like the Comoros, where coups are somewhat chronic? Yeah, look, um, um, DeCalo isn't right about everything. Um, um, I think he, even I, um, I like his work, but even I just sometimes, uh, I think you're, you're pushing this too far because he reduces <laughs> coups almost to that. Um, but he's right at that time, and, and still in many ways today, structural causes were often emphasized. And these more individual or uh, personal differences tended to be ignored. And he tried to, to bring that more to the center. And I think he, he had a point. But I wouldn't want to extend that to every single coup. I think it's also important to recognize how often in these contexts, these armies are often quite factionalized along very many lines, whether it's um, ideological, ethnic. And because of that, who's a stage by a minority anyway? In that factionalized context, there is going to be a larger majority amongst whom there will be factions or individuals who feel they're losers in that coup, who are not happy about that coup, and are likely to attempt a coup some stage further down the line. That could be one reason for that. Another also, I think that's important too, is um, the consistent politicization of militaries by political figures. When, when politicians consistently um, use our militaries for political purposes, drawing them into politics. So there are a range of reasons one could put across for the occurrence of coups. I, mean, I, I didn't want to reduce it to just a person. And I think the color has a point. And I want to look at some of the coups that have happened recently and think um, some of them have a degree of that. And certainly the, the coup in Guinea 
the relationship Conde once had with Dumbuya, there's some kind of very interpersonal difference that happened there. That 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 partly, no, not entirely, but that partly explains why that coup happens. Not what Dumbuya says, that he suddenly woke up one morning and he realized Conde was undemocratic when he's he had been he's he's enforcer for years. So you've already discussed at length the role of Western security assistance in military training in North and West Africa. But there's also a lot of reporting on the prevalence of pro-Russia messaging from Putschists and transitional governments. To what extent do you credit speculation about external actors' roles in planning, facilitating, or supporting these coups? Hmm. I teach a course at the University of Oxford on, on, about coups. And one of the weeks, I think it's week, uh, week seven or so, we try to talk about the role of external actors in coups in Africa. And I always start out by saying that we need to be humble because when it comes to the role of external actors, their precise role, we can never be quite certain what they did or did not do. The UK context got the freedom from information, so you can get government to release certain documents if you should request them. But you can't do freedom of information on MI6. So <laughs> what British intelligence does precisely, you, you'll never know. CIA as well, thank God Nixon did what he did. Watergate wouldn't have known much of what um, the likes of Eisenhower and presidents before him did in countries abroad had the U.S. Senate not set up committees to look into this on the back of the Watergate scandal. So I always like to say, let's talk about the role of external actors with a degree of humility because there's much we don't know and will never know. Certainly, I know I've, I've seen a lot of talk about um, the involvement of Russia. The Kremlin is never going to open up those kinds of files. China may have been involved. They, they're never going to uh, be open about that as well. So I think it's, it's good to be um, circumspect. But there are certain things that are apparent, particularly in these recent coups. Burkina Faso, Mali has been in the aftermath. When the coups have happened, Burkina Faso, Mali, some citizens come out onto the streets to express support for the coups. And lo and behold, they're holding up a Russian flag. They have posters of Vladimir Putin. You know, what the, what the? Russia has absolutely no colonial history in Africa. <laughs> so you're like, why would the Bikinabe or the Marians be holding up Russia? Where did they find them in the first place? Some of the posters of Putin were remarkable because they're very glossy and clearly are manufactured somewhere else. So I think what perhaps, again, humility, much we don't know. I don't want to say the Russians had a hand in these coups. What I will say is certainly that in the immediate post-coup scenario, the Russians via the so-called Wagner Group, we don't know what it's really called, and the Russians deny it exists anyway, have been quick to move into these parts of Africa with security challenges, with offers of assistance. We will help you fight the war you face against terrorist groups. We'll also help provide regime security, i.e. protect these coup governments from counter-coups, and in exchange, give us access to natural resources. I think the Russians have been quick to do that. And also, one of the big conditions on any coup governments is always from African regional and continental bodies and the international community, whatever that means, more broadly, to stage an election right away. Russians have been to offer, we'll help you run an election and do information or dis, should I say, disinformation campaigns. That's what they offer. And exchange for natural. We can be more certain about, about that. 
And they've been doing this for some time. They were in Mozambique, not, not a cool scenario, but did attempt to give assistance with the terrorist problem in Mozambique. They didn't do a particularly fabulous job. And the Mozambican Filimo government eventually asked them to leave. But they're in Central African Republic, Madagascar as well. So this is Russian reassertion or re-penetration in parts of Africa. They've been quick to move in in these post-coup situations. I don't want to give them a role in the actual carrying out of the coups um, themselves because that's partly hard to know. And I also don't want to underemphasize, or I should say we shouldn't underemphasize the agency of Africans themselves, whether it's Dumbuya in Guinea, whether it's the Burkina Faso coup, the Malian coup, or the Sudanese coup, those who stage these coups have very domestic motivations for staging them. Ultimately, at the end of the day, whatever role a foreign actor may, may have in a coup, a coup cannot occur, cannot succeed if domestic actors actually don't buy into it for themselves, put their necks on the line, carry it out, and make it a success. So I think we should see domestic factors as driving these coups more than external actors. But in the aftermath, um, certainly the Russians via the so-called Wagner Group have been quick to move in. But beyond that, I want to say something else, which I think is significant here. Yes, the Russians can create assistance. Yes. One of the things they sell in their narrative is we have no colonial history here. We seek not to impose anything. We will give you this. You give us access to all these natural resources. Full stop. I think what also enables or what has also facilitated the entry of the Russians, is the mistakes of the West. The train and equip, for instance. Train and equip, that has conditioned relations between Burkina Faso, Mali, and, and outsiders. That actually, when you do external relations, right, they're very militarized relations. Natural resources in exchange for some kind of military support. So it was easy for the Russians to come in and offer pretty much what other states, Western states, were offering before. And they don't also say, again, coming back to these mistakes of the West, um, making it possible for Russia to make these easy moves. I think France has a lot to answer for, for its role in West Africa and the Sahel, Sahel region. I mean, it's France for a long time. It's, it's Elizabeth Schmidt, that book, Foreign Intervention in Africa, writes a lot about this. I think it's chapter seven in that book. I mean, France has had the most egregious interventions in Africa. Supporting coups there, putting down coups there, and we saw that recently as well. I think it's the Chad coup, which we haven't talked a lot about some so far, but it's also significant. Clearly a coup. But down France comes out and says, no, actually, this is a transition that will guarantee stability. So it's those kinds of double standards that makes it easy for other players to come in and say, no, we're, what you see is what you get. We're not going to be full of double standards like the French. I would also say historically, and I think it's Boubacar Diaye who writes about this, historically France signed all kinds of defense agreements, security arrangements with its former colonies. And in many ways, these arrangements, what we talked about before, these notions of democratic civilian control, weren't part of these arrangements. These security arrangements basically were tied to how tangible or how productive relations with France were. So as Diaye puts it, it infantilized the armies and security institutions in many former colonies, right? And I think it's this infantilization, if you will, getting um, dependency on France on a number of states for security, military support, training, armament, and the sort. That's just not allowed these militaries or security institutions to actually become embedded in the domestic context, homegrown, and um, have a, a particular domestic 
ethic that um, people like us who are having this conversation would like to see being a democratic kind of logic. So I think the France's meddling, the way it shaped military security relationships from the time of the colonial period in Francophone Africa is also part of why it's been possible for the Russians to move in. And as you've seen, side by side with these flags and glossy posters of Putin, you'll also see placards denouncing France. France, get out. And indeed, France has left some of these countries. I think it's Mali where they're, they're pulling out. And it's these complicated histories, problematic security relationships, help explain that. It was too easy for the Russians to move in. And I think this is the way we militarize, I'm saying we, I mean the West, um, relations with these states. It's easy. It conditions the way these armed states look to the outside world and relate. Who can now, if France is going out, who can come in and help us with security? And we give them, um, whether it's, it's, it's gold in exchange. And the relationships um, continue to be structured in that way. So I think it was, it was the carpet, if I don't want to say red carpet was laid out for the Russians to move in, but it certainly looks that way. Yeah, the situation was certainly amenable to be opportunized in some way by actors who had an interest in engaging in the region. With the prevalence of coups in the Sahel and elsewhere, how are regional bodies like ECOWAS, like AGAD, like the AU, and the international community responding to these events? What works about the responses and what does not? Aha, this is a whole doctoral project on its own, I think. <laughs> For these states, we've reached an important crossroads moment, if you will. When we started, you both set out how you, know, you had this sudden uptick in coup frequency. In saying that, it was a distinct nod to the fact that the number of coups, coup occurrence in Africa had declined until about a year or two. And a lot of that decline has been put down to the role of regional actors and continental bodies. So the African Union, ECOWAS, SADC, and others really working to build up quite robust anti-coup regimes. I think it's Isaka Soare who writes about how the African Union had become some kind of anti-coup norm entrepreneur, as he puts it. I think you're seeing that creaking at the seams now with this uptick in coups. One is obviously that these bodies continue to call some coups coups and some coups not coups. I still don't understand how the coup in Zimbabwe was not called a coup by the African Union. Incidentally, and this is, I digress, it is fascinating that Alpha Conde was the chairman of the African Union during the Zimbabwe coup. He publicly came out and called what was going on there coup, but subsequently retracted. So I think he, was, he got his wrist um, slapped or something, or simply didn't get the support for that. <laughs> but I digress. AU doesn't call that a coup, right? But they call what's happened in Sudan a coup. We've talked about the double standards around Chad. So these call into question the legitimacy of these regional continental bodies. But also beyond that, I think sometimes actually the AU has been quite consistent in calling coups, on the whole, coups, coups. But while the AU may be that way, it's very different calling a coup a coup from far away Addis. To be able to project power or influence to do something about these coups, to undo these coups, as Antonio Witt puts it, you've got to be able to project power. And the African Union can't do that. So it often has to rely on the regional bodies, right, to undo the coup. 
sort of has happened. These coups have happened in West Africa. A African Union calls them coups, denounces them, and looks to, say, ECOWAS, which is the regional body in West Africa, to impose sanctions because it's the one nearest the scene of action. But sometimes regional bodies and the African Union have not always been on the same page. So that's not helped as well with the legitimacy of these institutions. So they've been called into question by domestic populations for all these reasons. Going back to, I think there was a, one of the earlier questions when you talked about the amending, one of you asked me about the amending of constitutions. This also has been a bone of contention. Why is it that ECOWAS, African Union, come in to condemn coups, isolate, suspend states, impose sanctions when a coup happens, but when incumbent presidents amend constitutions so they can stay on for third, fourth term. Fascinating one is you're wearing Museveni. Couldn't run for more than two terms, changes it so he can run indefinitely, then runs into a problem. Um, constitution also has another clause that says you can't be over a certain age <laughs> when you're the president. He changes that too <laughs> so he can run until pretty much until he's um, 90 or whatever. The regional bodies, continental bodies, don't say anything. But should there be a coup against, say, Museveni in Uganda tomorrow, it's likely to be condemned, sanctions imposed. So again, for the domestic populations, calls into question the legitimacy of continental regional bodies. So I think that's these are inconsistencies, delegitimizations that these bodies need to seriously address sooner rather than later, because that anti-coup regime it had its critics seem to be working. There is a real risk here that um, it could unravel entirely. And all of this worsened by the fact that in as much as, and I talked a lot about the AU not being able to project power to the particular regions, the AU and these regional bodies also actually re rely on the responses of actors outside Africa being consistent with theirs. So the Chad coup we talked about before, it would have been a big help if France had actually recognized that as a coup and say the EU and others also moved to back up support in an anti-coup position taken by the African Union, for example. But unfortunately, while we've, we talked about all these problems within Africa, the international context has changed too. I think it's, it's Larry Diamond who's been writing for a long time um, about the rolling back of civil and political freedom worldwide, that we, we're undergoing um, global recession. I think Nicholas Van der Waal has, what I think he called it, he called it um, democracy promotion fatigue. So I think with these challenges more broadly as well, it created for a, a particular moment in the more international context where um, democracy promotion does seem to be in trouble. So this changed international context, if you will, certainly helps. I don't want to say enable, but perhaps it does somehow embolden coup doers that you stage a coup, you might get away with it because of the particular moment we're in. I'd like to, let me just think here about the context I'm in. Oxford, the United Kingdom, the UK, not that its foreign policy was ever that ethical, but certainly you see even more diminished <laughs> ethical thrust in the post-Brexit period when the UK does foreign policy. Now they're looking for trade partners. How do we build economic relations? It's not about constitutionalism, democracy, and the sort. The, these ideals will be played up from a rhetorical point of view, but they're looking to do trade. I have not heard Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, say a word about any of these coups in the House of Commons. The, the attention is elsewhere. And I think um, for your audience over there in the US, I think Biden held the Democracy Summit late last year. 
he some, I think, attempted to make some kind of return to putting America at the forefront of promoting democracy and constitutions around the world and some kind of attempt, more so than Trump ever cared about. Whether Biden actually means it and whether he'll succeed, I don't know. The likes of Larry Diamond would like to see the US take a more, you know, be more front foot about this, but we don't know. So I think that changed international context certainly helps or emboldens Kudos to believe they can get away with their actions. It's a very comprehensive answer. We've had a really good interview. We've covered everything from Alpha Conde on a couch to Brexit. I'm not sure how much more <laughs> thorough we could be. <laughs> it's a fascinating moment. Let's see how external actors respond. Domestic populations themselves also have to come to the parties because ultimately it's the domestic populations that are affected by these coups in the first instance. And yes, you always see whether it's Mali, um, Burkina Faso, people coming out to support these coups. Doesn't mean that they back military rule per se. I think Afro-Burlington data keeps telling us that um, when citizens actually ask, they prefer democratic systems, but they are frustrated by certain goings on within the system. One might want to say that maybe it's the democratic dividend not, not, not coming in completely, but it's not support for what I mean to say. It's not, it's, this is not citizens supporting military rule. They are simply against something about the system, whether it's, it's misgovernance or, or the absence of security or, or corruption or in the case of Conde, a leader who was deeply unpopular for violating a constitution and, 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 and rigging an election. So um, let's see. Um, ultimately, it's it's what the domestic populations do, how they respond to these coups um, further down the line that will shape um, political destinies. Absolutely. We have to wait and see. We just want to thank you so much, Miles, for your time. It's been an incredibly insightful interview. As Sarah said, we really went full circle. <laughs> and thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. I enjoyed this very much. This has been Afrofiles. Thanks for listening. For more information on Dr. Tendi's work and other research cited during this episode, check out our show notes. This episode was produced by me, Luke St. Pierre. And me, Sarah Daly. Our theme music is from Risen. Thanks for listening.